The time is now 6 p.m. Welcome to WORT's Local News for Wednesday, October the 11th, 2023. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. In tonight's news, one Madison teenager is dead after a shooting last night on Madison's Far East Side. The big rebrand cost the UW system just under half a million dollars. A legislative task force looks for solutions to human trafficking. And on the second half, we'll hear from an organizer from the World Naked Bike Ride as that event finds itself under conservative scrutiny. And of course, the upcoming weather forecast, and we'll go back to 1969. Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. First Lady Dr. Jill Biden spent Monday and Tuesday in Northeast Wisconsin drumming up support for the Biden administration. On Monday night, Dr. Biden joined a Packers watch party hosted by the American Cancer Society. Despite the less than desired outcome of the game, Dr. Biden spoke about winning efforts in the fight against cancer. As vice president, Joe Biden headed what was known as the Cancer Moonshot Initiative, which sought major advances in the diagnosis and treatment of cancer. The first lady emphasized prevention and early detection as the most effective means of reducing the burden of the disease. On Tuesday, Dr. Biden met with Menominee Indian tribal representatives at a primary school and with local business operators. Brown County and other areas of Northeast Wisconsin are considered one of the most swing vote areas in the state. Tomorrow, the state assembly is slated to take up Republican-led legislation on trans issues. One bill would ban gender transition treatment for people under 18. That bill bans a wide swath of gender-affirming care, from puberty blockers to gender reassignment surgery, which is rare for minors to receive. Another would prohibit trans women and girls from competing in women's sports. The assembly is slated to start their session at 10 a.m. tomorrow. Meanwhile, the Senate Committee on Health is also slated to hear public testimony on a wide swath of bills that include several impacting trans folks. One is the Senate version of the Assembly Bill blocking gender-affirming surgery. Another of those Senate bills would allow providers who provide gender-affirming care to be sued by their patients. The Senate Committee on Health begins their hearings, which also include bills on informed consent for pelvic examinations and various bills on handling death records tomorrow at 11.30 a.m. Governor Evers is pushing to intervene in a legal challenge to the state's legislative maps, reports NBC15. The governor filed a motion yesterday seeking to intervene in the suit before the Wisconsin Supreme Court. In a statement, he said he wouldn't stop fighting for fair, independent, and nonpartisan redistricting. Meanwhile, conservative legal group the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty also filed a motion to intervene in the same redistricting lawsuit today. Analyses by the Associated Press, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, and numerous academic studies have consistently found that Wisconsin is one of the most gerrymandered states in the nation, with Republicans winning far more seats than they would based on the overall state vote. The identity of the last member of the secret three-person panel that explored the impeachment of Justice Janet Protasiewicz has been revealed, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. That final member is Supreme Court Justice John Wilcox. Last week, Wilcox denied he was the third judge, but after the records of former Justice David Prosser were made public at a court hearing, Wilcox confirmed he was part of, of the group of three. Assembly Speaker Robin Voss asked these three former justices, Prosser, Wilcox, and Patience Rogensack, to advise him on the legality of his proposal to impeach Justice Protosewitz. When he made the announcement, he insisted that the names of the advisory group remain confidential. The names were obtained through a Freedom of Information request filed against Prosser. 
All the former justices provided their views to the media, namely that there is no basis for impeachment of the new Supreme Court justice. Test results for students, both statewide and in each individual district, were released yesterday, and they indicated good progress in the first post-pandemic year. However, Madison Metropolitan School District students lagged behind state averages in most grades and subjects. The persistent gap between the academic achievement of white and black students grew throughout the state. For example, 11% of black students and 47% of white students were rated as proficient in language arts. In math, the gap was even greater. The racial gap was even more pronounced in the state capital. White students in Madison scored higher than other white students nationwide. Meanwhile, black students scored substantially lower than their statewide counterparts. The proficiency rate for Madison's white students was 10 times higher than that of our black students. A state Senate committee has passed what it terms a comprehensive bill to address PFAS pollution, reports the Associated Press. The bill passed along party lines with the three Republicans voting in favor of the bill and the two Democrats, including Diane Hesselbein of Middleton, voting against the bill. The bill secures a fund of $125 million that would fulfill grant requests from Wisconsin towns, cities, and counties that are looking to conduct tests. It provides partial funding for the treatment of water from utilities and the treatment of PFAS leaking from landfills. Environmental advocacy organizations registered their opposition because of the bill's extraordinary new restrictions on the Department of Natural Resources' ability to investigate possible sources of pollution. Even if there is evidence a manufacturing facility is spilling PFAS into land or water, the proposed legislation requires the DNR to get written approval from the owner to test the property. Wisconsin energy companies got very mixed grades in a new survey the Sierra Club released today. The annual report card reviews the company's progress in reducing carbon emissions. Wisconsin Power & Light, the major utility in south-central Wisconsin, saw its grade increase from a D to a B and is now in the top 15% of utilities in the nation. WP&L is adding 1,100 acres of solar that will be able to provide carbon-free power to 300,000 homes. The state's largest utility, known as We Energy, increased its score from a failing grade to a D. Its rating is still in the lower half of the 72 rated utilities. We and its related utility, Wisconsin Power Service, have been slow to cut emissions. It has also attempted to delay the closing of major coal-powered plants operating south of Milwaukee. We Energy increased its consumer rates by 11% earlier this year and is now requesting an additional 3% increase to finance its construction of renewable energy operations. And a State Street building that has sat vacant almost nine years is posed to have a new occupant, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The space at 250 State Street sits facing Noodles & Company, Tutto's Pasta, and the Triangle Market and is next door to Sato's. It was last a sandwich shop and is soon to be a baked wings restaurant. And those are the headlines for this evening. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories. Last year, Wisconsin was one of 37 states in the nation to receive an F on a child and youth sex trafficking report card. Shared Hope International, a research and advocacy institute, grades states on their laws, their enforcement and prosecution of those laws, and their continued care for survivors. In August, State Assembly Speaker Robin Voss established a task force to look for solutions. That task force held a public meeting earlier today with testimony from law enforcement, advocates, and government officials. WORT news producer Faye Parks has the story. The Assembly Speaker's Bipartisan Task Force on Human Trafficking was one of four created this summer. They are tasked with information gathering on a variety of issues, from artificial intelligence to childhood obesity. The new Trafficking Task Force met for the first time two weeks ago with testimony from Jake Jansky of Wisconsin's Department of Justice Division of Criminal Investigation. He told the members of the task force that it can be challenging to get exact numbers on human trafficking. 
According to the United States Department of Immigration and Customs, human trafficking survivors sometimes don't identify as victims. And if the survivors do attempt to get help, traffickers are often skilled at manipulating law enforcement and intimidating their victims. In a press conference last month, Representative Jody Emerson, a Democrat from Eau Claire who vice-chairs the task force, said she has confidence in Wisconsin's existing trafficking laws and their enforcement, but the state needs to better systematize the identification of and support for survivors. At today's meeting, the task force explored trafficking policies in other states and invited testimony from Wisconsin law enforcement and local advocates. Right now, they're exploring new tools to combat human trafficking that will eventually be presented to the state legislature for consideration. Amber Otis is the senior staff attorney with the Wisconsin Legislative Council. She pointed to a new law implemented in Florida that mandates special training in the foster system to recognize the signs of trafficking. The legislation goes into pretty significant detail about the content of that required training, including basic information, relevant terminology, risk factors to identify, and steps that should be taken when you have identified an at-risk youth. And Oregon developed a similar program that applies to a wider swath of government employees. Oregon's new law requires DOJ to develop a general one-hour virtual training on trafficking and then requires staff of all state and county departments who work with youth to take that training at least once every two years at no cost. This is just a small fraction of the model legislation that the legislative staff attorneys have researched. Shannon Cirilla is the newly appointed full-time anti-trafficking detective for the Madison Police Department. She said that she led numerous sexual assault cases over the course of her career that were more complex than the initial reports led on. These experiences motivated her to fight for systemic change. One woman reported that another woman drugged her and brought her to a house with several men waiting. She agreed to go through testimony, and as you know, the court process is very long. On uh, August 16th, 2016, I received a call from our officer in charge of the city. They expressed to me that my victim had hung herself. So we had to go forth with a victimless trial. Very devastating. You asked me what my mission is. It is to prevent these cases from occurring wherever possible and to help vulnerable victims get the resources, support, and the help they need to not only endure the long judicial system, but to ensure they have continued healthy, meaningful lives. Jan Miyasaki has supported trafficking survivors since the 90s. She leads Madison's Project Respect, a local counseling and harm reduction firm. Project Respect collaborates with another anti-human trafficking task force established this year that is run by the Wisconsin Department of Justice. Alongside the Department of Children and Families, the DOJ has developed a roadmap for federal, state, and tribal law enforcement agencies to respond to human trafficking in Wisconsin. The roadmap supports collaboration among law enforcement and victim services providers in order to develop and implement a victim-centered, trauma-informed response to human trafficking in Wisconsin communities. So a coordinated strategy is needed to actively engage with the community to develop trust and to improve relationships between law enforcement and people on the ground. Miyazaki has multiple solutions for lawmakers. The first would make it simpler for the courts to expunge survivors' criminal records of offenses they committed while being actively trafficked. Survivors often struggle to find jobs or housing due to these records. The second would decriminalize underage prostitution and provide fully funded, specialized services to underage survivors. The third would require Wisconsin schools to develop policies on the prevention of and response to child sex trafficking and regularly train school staff on these policies. It would also require prevention programs for students so they can learn about boundaries and healthy relationships. The fourth would create specialized services for survivors with developmental and intellectual disabilities and waive the court's requirement that survivors over the age of 18 show proof of force, fraud, and coercion in those cases. The fifth would develop a standard education plan for community organizations that host and support survivors. Additionally, it would modify regulations that prevent healthy and prepared survivors from becoming foster parents. The sixth would assess where youth centers are most needed and provide funding for those that support underage sex trafficking survivors. The Assembly Speaker's Task Force is set to host at least two more public information gathering meetings in the coming months. They have not yet announced those dates or the date that they will present their findings to the state legislature. I think Representative Emerson asked, can we arrest our way out? I don't know about that, but I can tell you, I firmly believe this because I've seen miracles happen. 
love, understanding, and compassion. We can love, understand, and compassion our way out of this. We can win on the intangibles. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. Last night, a 15-year-old girl was shot and killed, and three other teens were injured on the far east side of Madison. Her death marks the 10th homicide in the city so far this year and the second this year at that east side housing complex. Our news reporter, Diego Alegria, headed down to the city-county building this afternoon for additional updates. The shooting happened last night on Milwaukee Street at a low-income housing complex called Harmony at Grandview Commons. It left a 15-year-old East High School student dead. Mayor Sajia Rhodes-Conway called this death and death of a child the worst thing that any city faces. It shocks our sensibilities. It hurts our hearts. And my thoughts are with the family, the friends, the classmates, and the neighbors of these young victims. Our entire community is in mourning for the young girl that was killed. The gunfire also left three other teenagers injured. One has been treated and released, one has received treatment, and another remains hospitalized in serious condition. Last night's shooting was the second at the Harmony in the last four months. In July, an argument at the same complex resulted in the death of a 20-year-old man. That came after numerous complaints of disturbances and violence, less than a year after the complex opened in 2019. In 2020, the city declared the complex a chronic nuisance in 2020, saying the owner could face fines if they didn't improve public safety. Madison Chief Sean Barnes says that the police department has been active in trying to prevent crime and shootings in this complex, mostly via their outreach team. We've made suggestions about cameras and camera placements and lighting. We've made suggestions about parking and about the parking lot. For Mayor Rhodes Conway, the shooting reveals the failure of gun safety measures both in the state and the country. She emphasizes gun violence as an urgent American crisis. Our nation and our state have failed to deliver the gun safety laws that would take guns off of our streets. Our state in particular has failed to provide adequate revenue for the public safety needs of Wisconsin cities, and they have specifically banned cities from taking active measures to stop the sale of guns, to regulate assault weapons, and to provide at least some measure of protection against the flow of deadly weapons into our neighborhood. Gun violence is an urgent American crisis, and we need every level of government to act accordingly. The 15-year-old girl that died was a student at East High School. Inter-Superintendent Lisa Quistet reported on the services provided by the staff members to the students and their colleagues in this difficult time. Today, school staff have been helping our students process a wide range of emotions. Our student services teams are providing supports for both students and staff members. And these supportive member, member, uh, measures will be in place for as long as our communities are in need. I want to thank our external community organizations who have been mobilizing to provide supports to students and families outside of school and in our neighborhoods. Chief Barnes says police are still looking for at least five suspects. Preliminary surveillance video shows a car carrying four people indiscriminately firing across the complex. Today, police provided extra patrols around East and Lafollette High Schools and Whitehorse Middle School. At 10 homicides and the year not over, Madison is on track to exceed homicide deaths in recent years after the number of murders in Madison dipped to six last year. Reporting to WORT News, I'm Diego Alegria. The UW system is getting a name change and an updated look. And it's shifting its color palette from signature gray and dark red in favor of black and teal. For more on the update and what it might portend, here's WORT reporter Gigi Royko Maurer. UW System President Jay Rothman revealed the name change yesterday. Today I'm announcing that we have a new identity. 
the universities of Wisconsin, with the emphasis on universities. The idea is to shift the focus from a system to the universities. He says the new name and identity will better emphasize the constellation of 13 universities across the state. The people of Wisconsin take great pride in our universities, and we think our new name, our new identity, best reflects the collective role our 13 public universities play in the economic and social fabric of Wisconsin. With that name change comes an update to the Universities of Wisconsin brand. The logo is black and teal and has a minimal, business-driven look. It displays a sharp-cut outline of Wisconsin in black with its name in blue stacked next to it. Campus materials, web pages, and other elements are expected to be updated with the new brand in the next few months and in place by early 2024. Some social media accounts were already updated today. The new design was created by BVK, an advertising agency out of Milwaukee, with more help from Baker Tilly, a Chicago-based consulting firm. The full rebrand is estimated to cost around $480,000, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. That's almost half a million dollars. And it comes as the UW system, Universities of Wisconsin, faces tough financial times and campus closures. This summer, Republican lawmakers cut state campus funding by $32 million, the equivalent the system spends on diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. The UW has refused to eliminate DEI programs, forcing the administration to make cuts elsewhere. A report released in May estimated that the system will face a $60 million shortfall by the end of 2023 to 2024. Back at the start of July, UW Platteville's Richland Center branch shut down permanently after the legislature failed to extend funding to keep the campus going. Earlier this year, the University of Oshkosh readied themselves for a $1.5 million budgetary shortfall and planned to lay off around 200 staff. Although the UW system will now go by the Universities of Wisconsin, it will still keep the UW system moniker for all legal purposes. State law prevents a formal name change. State statute explicitly names a system of institutions of learning known as the University of Wisconsin system. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Gigi Royko-Mauer. The time is now 628 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. As more baby boomers retire, attention is being increasingly paid to the care they'll need as they age. Advocates in Wisconsin say a new ranking outlines where things stand in the Badger State and what can be done to bolster care at home and in nursing facilities. Here's Mike Mullen with the Wisconsin News Connection. A new report ranks Wisconsin 15th in the nation for long-term care services, but advocates for the people who need that care say more could be done. The ranking is from AARP's Long-Term Services and Support Scorecard. Jim Flaherty with AARP Wisconsin agrees the state has done a better job in some areas, such as increasing the number of aging and disability resource centers. But he says there still isn't enough support to help older residents stay in their homes and receiving care in that setting. He warns that the state is going to have a hard time keeping up. Wisconsin is getting older as a state. And the need for more home health care workers and facility-trained health care workers is only going to increase. The national report offers recommendations, including some that have been suggested for years, such as providing more financial support to unpaid family caregivers. Officials say policies like tax credits can help reduce cost burdens. States, counties, and cities also are encouraged to develop their own innovative aging plans that can help communities better manage long-term care needs. While advocates prefer to help all the residents remain in their homes, they say nursing homes continue to grapple with staffing shortages. Flaherty says low wages are a big factor. Wisconsin could really benefit from some additional resources provided by the state 
to increase the pay for some of the workers in these facilities. You know, the pay is below level of a lot of other jobs that these folks can take. The report says in Wisconsin, nursing home wages are more than $1.50 an hour lower than other entry-level jobs. Nationally, more than a half of staff in nursing homes leave their jobs within a year. However, the turnover rate is better in Wisconsin. This is Mike Moen for Wisconsin News Connection. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. The time is now 6.31, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. Madison's most recent event as part of World Naked Bike Ride is getting national attention. That's after United States Representative Tom Tiffany of northern Wisconsin brought it up in a congressional hearing with the Attorney General. He pointed to a complaint that a child was photographed participating in July's ride, saying that local law enforcement is not responding appropriately. Now, state Republicans are pushing forward two bills that would tighten public indecency restrictions across Wisconsin. Peter Keating is one of the race's organizers, and he shared his perspective on the controversy with WORT news producer Faye Parks this afternoon. Thank you for joining me, Peter. You're welcome. Kicking things off, can you tell me more about the Naked Bike Rides mission? How did it get started? To start off with, I would not call it the Naked Bike Ride. I would call it the World Naked Bike Ride. To me, it's extremely important to get the name of it correct. It was conceived as an international event because it is it addresses concerns for the, the whole of humanity. My understanding is that it first occurred in the year 2004 and was organized by a man who uh, lives in Canada. There had been similar protests before that in which people rode uh, their bikes naked to protest oil. And so I think the main thrust of the event originally was to protest the production, distribution, and consumption of petroleum and petroleum products. And I think later on, they uh, added the cause of advocating body-positive attitudes. Yeah, in 04, his name was Conrad Schmidt, and he organized people in many cities throughout the world to do this kind of a bike ride on the same date. And so, out of curiosity, what is the purpose of doing it naked? I think the original impetus for that was just as an attention-getting device. But then it seemed to make a lot of a lot of sense to include the body positive message in on that too. I I couldn't say that for certain, but that's just what I guess. What response has the Madison instantiation gotten from the public? For the most part, it seems really positive. When we go out there and do that, people will really smile and give us uh, vocal encouragement, high fives, everything. Occasionally, someone might say something negative about it. But, you know, in the years that have gone by, as I say, I've seen very little of that. It actually seems to have decreased over the years. And then what kind of response did you get from law enforcement? Has that response changed over time? In the first year, we met with police several times in planning the ride. And we really didn't expect what happened that year. There were 11 tickets issued to 10 participants because one man received two citations. They were tickets for disorderly conduct, and they were not state statute violations. They were issued as a city ordinance violation. We contested those in court, and uh, all but one were eventually dismissed. The one was uh, no contest uh, or guilty plea. Um, I never really found out exactly what motivated that, and I think it might have just been a matter of expediency because that person, I believe, had to travel from out of state, and it was just too much of a hassle to do that uh, to make court appearances. But for the most part, all, all citations were, in fact, dismissed by the court. The following year, most of the tickets from the first year were still pending, we weren't sure what was going to happen. And then that second year, at the end of the ride, the police came by and they asked for a volunteer to be symbolically ticketed. So one person did so and received, again, a city ordinance violation for disorderly conduct. And like within a few weeks, when all the rest of the, the citations were dismissed, so was that one. So since then, I think, 
since the police found out that their tickets weren't going to hold up in court, they weren't going to issue any more. As we know, someone photographed and shared an image of an underage girl participating in this summer's ride. Did you hear about that before Representative Tiffany brought it up in a congressional hearing? First I heard about it was a few days later when I got an email message from someone on the county board that there'd been a complaint about that. So yes, I, I knew that someone had a problem with it just a few days after the event. And have you had any contact with the MPD at all concerning this particular incident? No. As you know, the, there was a newspaper article that came out exactly a week after the, the bike ride in which it was reported that the Madison Police Department had done an investigation and found no wrongdoing. I'm wondering, too, what is the ride's policy on underage participants? Are they allowed? What's, what's the organization's perspective on that? We have occasionally asked people, well, can I bring my children? And the answer to that is, uh, yes, minors are perfectly welcome as long as they're under the supervision of a parent or legal guardian. We don't feel that we in any way have the uh, legal or moral authority to discriminate on the basis of, of age any more than we do race or religion. So now state Republicans are pushing forward two bills that would tighten public indecency restrictions. What are your thoughts on that? What would these bills actually do? Oh, well, if the bills went into effect, they could conceivably have a chilling effect on, on what we consider to be First Amendment rights. My impression is that what they're going after is what they consider to be indecency. But I don't think they really understand what indecency means under the law. They're just going by what they feel indecency is. And, and, and as such, I don't think they, they think that there is any First Amendment consideration involved because obscenity or indecency, whatever, is not afforded First Amendment protection. So I suspect that, that that's their thinking on that, that they don't think there is any First Amendment consideration. But we think that that is extremely important. And so if these bills were to pass into law, would it potentially make it illegal for you guys to stage any more naked bike rides in the future? It could. There's also a question of whether, uh, whether it would be enforced and prosecuted, because there are laws on the books, I mean, like small amounts of marijuana are not prosecuted in, in Madison. So folks who are against these bills say that there's a difference between sexual and non-sexual nudity. In fact, that's the difference that led MPD to choose not to investigate the incident in question any further. Can you outline that difference for me now? Well, uh, there's nothing more sexual about, uh, there's nothing indeed sexual at all about riding a bicycle any more than taking a shower or many other things that are done without clothing. Okay, so you would say that these lawmakers are, essentially they're projecting their own morals onto others um, in a way that you don't support? Absolutely. I would say that they see nudity in and of itself as being inherently sexual, and I say that's nonsense. We also know that Dane County Supervisor Jeff Weigand has been a vocal opponent of the naked bike ride. He told Wisconsin Public Radio, quote, proponents of this bike ride have stated that they believe this is about their freedom to protest. I would ask them, what about my freedom? What about my freedom to walk around, walk down a street, and not be assaulted by nudity? What about my children's innocence that I work very hard to protect? Unquote. Do you have a response to that? He's essentially saying that he has a legal protection from seeing anything that he finds offensive, which here again I would characterize as nonsense. Thank you again for right. agreeing to speak with me, Peter. Well, uh, thanks for the opportunity. WORT thanks its listener sponsors and Five Nines, a locally owned cloud service provider of enterprise-level IT infrastructure consulting, hosting, and management services. On the web at fivenines.com. Phone number 512-1000. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru Rob McClure. Well, temperatures in Madison reached 33 degrees this morning and with uh, near calm winds for quite a while uh, early in the day, allowing for stratification of the air below the six-foot height level of the recording thermometer, I suspect that many spots probably did receive their first frost if they hadn't already done so on Monday morning when we dropped to 34. 
Areas northeast of Madison in uh, Columbia and Dodge counties did remain cloudbound near dawn, much as they did yesterday, so those areas may have escaped. We should be clear of additional frost threats, I think, for a number of days now. So if you managed to soldier your tender plants through the last few nights, you should be in fairly good shape for oh, a week or better, the way it looks. We managed to crack 60 degrees both yesterday and today. Indeed, we hit 63 today, which was a lucky break given the tenacity of the cloud covered uh, just to the northeast of Madison, which uh, continues at this hour to wind around the cutoff mid-level low that sits just north of the Great Lakes. Indeed, if you have a look at the uh, visible satellite image of the upper Midwest that we have linked on the WORT weather webpage this evening, You'll see that cloud shield just to our northeast and what was effectively a narrow northwest to southeast corridor through which the sun was able to shine today over Madison. Uh, between that retreating system to the northeast and developing cloud cover now to our southwest, those latter clouds, which you may have seen uh, invading our skies over the city late this afternoon, are being lifted into existence along and ahead of a nascent frontal zone that's just starting to take shape across uh, northern and central Iowa down into adjacent parts of Illinois as winds begin to back subtly across the southern plains ahead of developing low pressure out in southeastern Colorado. And that surface circulation out there in turn is spinning up underneath the evacuating influence of the big upper trough that's up above it, sliding eastward now across the southern Rockies. That upper feature is also visible on the water vapor image of the continental U.S. that we have linked up at the top of the weather webpage. The quite vigorous leftward spin that's evident in that upper feature is going to help deepen the surface circulation, which will be lifting uh, northeastward uh, from Colorado into northeastern Nebraska tomorrow, then across northern Iowa and Illinois on Friday, all the while rotating warm air and increasing amounts of Gulf moisture northward ahead of it. Colder air that's still being circulated southward behind that departing Great Lakes low is going to provide a nice, dense wedge against which that incoming warm air will be lifted and cooled as that warm air spins leftward and converges into the approaching low, uh, low pressure circulation out to our west, uh, dropping out its moisture then as rain. Uh, that precipitation process will uh, be especially productive on Friday as the low begins to approach over Iowa and northern Illinois and sharpens up what will be an elevated frontal surface in the cool air up to its north. It'll be right above where we are. Forecast model predictions about uh, total rainfall over these coming three days are still quite variable, but uh, two inches or more are certainly possible. Uh, at this point, it's looking uh, less likely that we'll see the uh, surface warm front clearing the area northward on Friday, as appeared might be possible back on Monday when I gave the forecast. Though we might get enough instability into the low levels of the atmosphere by later Friday to at least prompt some passing thunderstorms, uh, which could bolster rainfall totals uh, locally in some areas. That would be mostly south of Madison, I would suspect. The overall system should uh, clear us to the east finally by sometime later on Saturday, leaving uh, what will be a drier day to close the weekend, but otherwise uh, we're going to be basically rainy and cool and increasingly windy from uh, about midday onward tomorrow. But uh, back to the specifics, the skies will see increasing high and mid-level clouds now as we, uh, from the southwest as we go through the evening, with temperatures uh, dropping to the upper 40s by midnight or after, then uh, leveling off as the overcast starts to thicken up more. We may see a passing uh, kind of sprinkly shower or two as we get on towards dawn uh, tomorrow, though the early rains may be fairly transient through the midday hours tomorrow, especially in areas from Madison to the north and east. Temperatures tomorrow will hold uh, in the low 50s as clouds continue to thicken, uh, probably in waves, perhaps with, perhaps with uh, some spots of clear skies early, but uh, thickening up definitely later on. And easterly winds will uh, steadily ratchet up to uh, t 12 to 20 miles per hour by the end of the day. Areas south and southwest of Madison will see a good steady rain, I think, by later tomorrow, though areas uh, further east and north of Madison may see only uh, may see the steadier rain set in only by the late day or overnight hours. Temperatures tomorrow will uh, tomorrow night will hold steady in the uh, low 50s on east and northeast winds, which will continue to howl at 20 to 25 miles per hour. 
Rains will be uh, off and on through tomorrow night, but we'll steady up again uh, going into and through uh, probably a good chunk of Friday. Winds will veer more uh, southeasterly for a while as we go through the day at 20 to 25 miles per hour, uh, gusting above 30 through the day before uh, winds slowly resume a more backing profile to the east and northeast. Temperatures may reach the mid-50s as somewhat warmer air is uh, swept over us mid or late day. Uh, and areas down towards the Illinois border may get uh, slightly warmer than that on Friday. Uh, otherwise, though, it'll just be windy and rainy with an, perhaps an inch or more coming down through the day Friday and into the evening. Winds will continue to back northeasterly overnight and increase uh, perhaps a bit still as we go into Saturday. So uh, 22 to 28 miles per hour sustained, gusting up to probably 35 or 40 miles per hour. And that'll be as the skies finally do start to break a bit on Saturday and rains become more intermittent and scatter eastward. Temperatures will continue to hold uh, just around 50 that day. Winds will be veering more northerly overnight with skies continuing to clear and temperatures dropping back to the mid-40s. And temperatures won't get back, I don't think, above 50 even on Sunday, despite the fact that we'll see more sunshine that day. Uh, northerly winds still up at uh, 10 to 17 miles per hour. We'll uh, see to that. We should be warming modestly as we get into uh, next week. Uh, temperatures uh, down here at the station on Bedford Street currently are 56, de 56 degrees. Dew point temperature is 33. Uh, winds are, have generally been calm over the past hour or so. Uh, passing mid-level uh, clouds over the station up at about 8,000 feet with a broken overcast uh, above that, about 15,000 feet. And the browner is uh, steady now, holding at 29.77 inches of mercury. It's now 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to the second week of October 1969, when the legislature denounced university administrators and faculty, Alder Paul Soglin outwitted his conservative colleagues, and the Badger football team finally won a game. Stu Levitan has the headlines from 54 years ago this week on tonight's Madison in the 60s. All these come They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, the second week of October, 1969. The legislature's Joint Committee to Study Disruptions, formed during the Black Study Strike in February, issues a blistering one-sided report denouncing university administrators for their, quote, incompetence, and endorsing a bill to close the UW security office and put Madison police on campus. It says faculty who have, quote, used their positions in the classroom as a podium to indoctrinate their students with their personal political views and convictions should be disciplined, and that students should be disciplined for certain off-campus activity, which, quote, demonstrates a danger or threat to the university community or the community in which the university is located. And in a not-so-subtle dig at President Fred Harvey Harrington, the committee also wants chancellors to start reporting directly to the Board of Regents, not their president. In a related development, the local post of the Veterans of Foreign Wars unanimously adopts a resolution urging the UW to ban seven political groups from campus, including the Students for a Democratic Society, the Young Socialist Alliance, and the Black People's Alliance. The resolution says taxpayers support the UW as an educational institution, quote, 
not a rendezvous area for radicals and revolutionaries, propaganda factories for communism, or spawning grounds for subversives. As the Madison-based 826 Ordnance Unit of the U.S. Army Reserves comes home after a year in Vietnam, just as Moratorium Day approaches, Alder Paul Soglin outwits his conservative council colleagues by combining the two events into one commemorative resolution that passes 16 to 6. Soglin's resolution endorses the moratorium in principle, declares the Common Council, quote, stresses the moral responsibility each person has for the acts of his country, and asks each citizen to, quote, look upon this day as a call to conscience and reflection. It also, quote, takes this opportunity to welcome home the men of the A-26, the Ordnance Company. The resolution does not note that during its time in-country, the 149 soldiers handled 450,000 tons of ammunition, an Army record, and were awarded 26 Bronze Stars, 60 Army Commendation Medals, and one Purple Heart. As many feared, the Madison Bus Company rejects the city's latest offer to resolve the lingering contractual dispute, causing concern that when the current contract expires on November 10th, Madison might be without a mass transit system. The company says it will not negotiate a new purchase price down from the $910,000 the city offered over the summer, and it refuses to accept the city's condition that purchase depends on federal aid. The company says it needs a date certain for the sale so it can complete its liquidation plan by September 1970. If it misses that deadline, it's on the hook for hefty corporate income taxes. And the company refuses to give the city a list of stockholders, stopping the city from trying to buy a controlling interest in the firm. Mayor Bill Dyke calls the company's position arbitrary and says, quote, they seem to feel they're in the driver's seat and are going to yank the city around as they see fit. A taxpayer revolt may be brewing in Madison's suburban neighborhoods. About 700 angry Eastside homeowners packed the sanctuary at Lakeview Moravian Church past capacity, while another 500 Westsiders fill the auditorium at Van High School. They're all out to jeer and heckle city assessor Ray Waterworth and his assistant over assessments that had risen anywhere from 25 to 300 percent. The assessors try, in vain, to explain that their only task is to gauge the market value of a property and that the sticker shock people were feeling was because their neighborhood had not been reassessed in several years. I don't want to hear about all of that, one Westshider shouts, what I really want to know is how do I get my assessment back to where it really belongs? Alder John Morris tells him to file an appeal by Friday and offers to help when he appears before the Board of Review. They came mad and went away mad, ready for a tax revolt, says Eastside Alder Roger Staven. There's a new problem for the underground newspaper Kaleidoscope. Not its politics, but its address. 211 Langdon Street owned by the Alpha Gamma Delta sorority and rented by the Madison Religious Society of Friends, is in an R6 residential district where commercial ventures are not permitted. But that's where Kaleidoscope does all its work, other than printing, in an office space loaned to it by the Quakers. Kaleidoscope editor-publisher Dave Wagner argues the venture is non-profit and therefore allowed, but the Zoning Board of Appeals disagrees. It upholds the determination of Zoning Administrator Wayne Simpson that the activity is prohibited and orders the paper to cease work at that address. Fifty organizers from the fledgling Madison Tenant Union are canvassing throughout the city, seeking to build membership as MTU announces an ambitious agenda on all matters relating to the rental relationship. Likening itself to a labor union, MTU is demanding recognition as the bargaining agent between tenants and large landlords. And if bargaining doesn't work, it plans lawsuits on such matters as needing to pay rent in advance and the proper return of security deposits. MTU is also developing plans for cooperative housing and to provide legal assistance for tenants declared indigent. And for the first time in 1,056 days, Three weeks longer than John F. Kennedy was president, the University of Wisconsin wins a football game, beating heavily favored Iowa 23-17. Other than a tie against the same Hawkeyes in 1967, 
the Badger Gritters had lost every game since beating Minnesota the last game of 1966. Not surprisingly, the celebration gets a little out of hand, as thousands of happy and drunk students wreck havoc downtown, blocking traffic and doing thousands of dollars in damage. Three stores on State Street have their display windows smashed, as does Eddie Elson's clothing and head shop, No Hassle. Police vehicles come in for special abuse. Several are stoned and their windshields cracked, and a gang of young men even make off with a local cop's cherry tops, stealing the red light off a squad car roof. There are seven arrests. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WORT news team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. And thanks especially to all of those of you who contributed your financial support during our recent fall fundraising drive. We did come up a little short of our goal for the station. So if you appreciate the non-commercial, uh, uh, non-commercially influenced aspect of this news broadcast, uh, do contribute. Good. Do, <laughs> do consider contributing a few bucks if you can. You can come onto our WORT donation portal on our. Our website at wortfm.org. We'd certainly appreciate it. Our headline writer this evening, boy, I'm having trouble. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Our reporters were Gigi Royko Maurer and Diego Alegria. Special thanks to feature contributor Stu Levitan. Lauren Hicks mixed our on air sounds this evening. Faye Parks produced the newscast, and Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night. <laughs>